All right, welcome to the first episode of the Piano Pedagogy podcast, um, a podcast where we talk about um, fundamental um, concepts of piano pedagogy, as well as delving into other subjects related to piano teaching. I'm Jacqueline Beckoff. I own a successful piano studio in Southern California, and I'm also the owner of Defined Music Teacher. With me here today is Ariane Lacra, the owner of Whittier Family Music School in Southern California. And uh, we're going to, uh, we met at uh, school at California State University at Fullerton. We both went through the pedagogy classes there uh, for our degrees. And uh, nice to see you, Ariane. Hey, how's it going, Jacqueline? <laughs> I'm doing great. So we're going to jump into two topics today. We're, you're going to talk a bit about method books. Um, and then I wanted to talk about preparation stage learning, maybe see if we can connect the two topics somehow. So why don't we just jump right in and uh, talk about method books? I'll hand it over to you. All right, great, thank you. Well, hi, I'm Arianne, and I'm really excited to be here for our very first Piano Pedagogy podcast. Wanted to just get started with the basics, you know, talk about some method books that we use uh, especially in the preparation stage, but also at any level and, and sort of compare and contrast um, each of the books that I had in mind. And the first one I wanted to start off with is a pretty popular one. It's the Faber and Faber Piano Adventures uh, lesson book, theory book, technique and artistry, performance, all of those. Um, For those who may not know, can you explain what a method book is? Oh yeah, sure. So uh, a method book is usually a uh, anywhere from 25 to 50, maybe 60 page book that teaches the fundamentals of piano uh, playing and and theory and technique using things like repertoire, sometimes taken from um, other composers, sometimes written originally and and things like uh just lessons including uh, included right in the book and usually a method book will involve some method that was championed by the pedagogues involved so with faber and faber for instance the piano adventures uh, method book it starts off with a pretty uh finger number centered approach like in the primer levels and then gets into like a middle c centered approach but also a little bit of multi-key so it in that way it combines a lot of the different methods out there um, and when i say methods in that sense there are two different ways to describe there are two different uh, uses of the word method here in this context. There's there's the kind where you're just talking about a method book, you know, a, a book by a certain publisher um, to teach the fundamentals of piano. And then there's just the term method, which is used to describe a teaching method that could be included in several different books, such as the intervallic method. Gotcha. Awesome. So do you personally use um, a method book? Yes, typically I use the Faber and Faber method books because they're so um, 
widely used and because I've been mostly working at community music schools for years where that was sort of the norm. But as of a few weeks ago, I've totally transitioned to just doing my own uh, teaching at my own studio 100% privately. And that's why I wanted to research this topic a little further, just, just for my own personal benefit as, as a now completely independent teacher who wants to branch out and, and do my own thing. Cool. Well, congratulations on um, opening up uh, your own, you know, transitioning to your own private studio 100%. That's always a really big milestone. So what kind of things did you find in your research? Well, what I found is that I think it's time for me to switch up my method books. <laughs> because over the years, you know, I've been teaching piano for nine or 10 years now, and I've noticed that there's no one-size-fits-all method book for, for every learner. Every student is so wildly different from, from one child to the next. I mostly work with children, but some adult learners, too. And um, the, the way that the Faber book goes about uh, teaching can be both effective and, and, you know, refreshing in the repertoire choices, but also it can get really confusing for kids who might like to stick to just middle C or maybe just hands positioned one octave apart as opposed to, you know, one hand lowest pitch on middle C, the other hand lowest pitch on, say, like E in the bass clef, which which breeds inconsistencies from one page to the next. It's It gets so different sometimes. So, um, I've been looking into John Thompson's method, which is a little bit more consistent. The hands are always just one octave apart. And there's so many criticisms of that method, too. But I, what I have noticed is that adult learners seem to gravitate to John Thompson's method. Gotcha. So um, would you say that the primary difference, especially in the early um, early method books, is the approach to staff reading? Oh, yeah, I think so. And, you know, even pre-staff reading, you could have, you know, floating letter names in the air in, in on the page. I mean, not in the air, but it, it, it feels like it's in the air when you read it. Um, and, and some method books use that before the staff. Others use floating finger numbers in the air, quote unquote. Others uh, use focus heavily on depictions of the keys, you know, like uh, music for little Mozarts uh, has lots of pictures of actual keys of the keyboard on each page of the pre-staff reading um, books and, and pages of those staff reading books. So, you know, what do you do pre-staff? Some people just prefer to dive right into staff reading, uh, focusing on landmark notes such as middle C, treble G, and uh, bass clef F, so that's another interesting way of going about it. But I find that a lot of, in my experience, a lot of the younger students struggle to remember uh, which one is treble G and which one is bass clef F. No matter how many times I seem to drive home the point that the bass clef is centered around the F line and the treble clef is kind of uh, focused in on the G line, uh, it, for some reason, it doesn't seem to reach people as effectively as telling them that the landmark note they should focus on is middle C. Gotcha. Yeah. So um, I think it's so 
useful that we do have method books because um, when you know when when try especially as a new teacher there are so many questions that you have about what order you should teach something um you know how how do you teach this because it's been so long when someone starts teaching piano it's been such a long time since they themselves have first learned to read on the staff and it's so easy for us to just completely forget what it's like not knowing that right it can be easy i remember when um I, you know the approach that that i had when i was when i was a child they just they just throw all the notes at you they and, and you're like all right here we go we're we're knowing all the notes from base c up to 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 you know the top of the staff and and now we're we're just going to go and um that works um for some students but it can be it can be so overwhelming and teachers can get just in this well why why don't you why, why don't you understand? I already told you what, what this means, but by using a method book to introduce these things slowly, um, it can be so useful for inexperienced teachers. Right, right, right. Um, especially in the first few years of, of a teacher's career, the method books, you know, each different lesson displayed on a different page of a method book, whether it's Alfred, um, Hal Leonard, Bastion, any of these big publishers, it can really remind us a lot of the things that we take for granted when we're getting ready to sit down and teach someone who's totally new to all of these concepts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that they're so, so useful for that. Um, my partner is a, is a dog trainer and right. <laughs> there are no dog training method books there's no you know you can't pick up and 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 learn in in order for you know follow along and it's so uh interesting watching the struggle that you know they have as a result of that versus you know being able to just pick up a method book and having the order of concepts already be kind of uh selected for you um, do you find that the the more you're teaching, the more you comfortable you get with going off book, as it as it were, to kind of to using a method of teaching something that's not the one in the book? Absolutely. If I find that a student of mine is just starting out and um, you know really excited to play whatever it is that they wanted to play from the beginning, whether they made a personal goal to learn a new TikTok song or, or something that's trending, then they find that they have to do all this unexpected work just to, to get the fundamentals down. That could really be a blow to their morale. And so I just sometimes like to shake things up, go off book and say, hey, you know what? Why don't we just learn this uh, piece you've been wanting to do by rote or, or some adaptation of it or maybe something that I was taught by a family member or an old teacher that didn't involve a book. I always find that uh, students' eyes will light up when they're struggling with the book and then we, we do some kind of palate cleanser just to uh, provide that fun that they are craving during a lesson. Yeah, abs absolutely. The longer I teach, the more I am comfortable with just kind of shaking things shaking things up. Um, now, you mentioned that you were interested in the John Thompson method. Is that something that you feel like you're going to switch over to from Faber? Absolutely. Um, 
I remember using it as a kid, actually, and and I just went into the uh, Mose Fullerton music and picked up a few copies of a John Thompson uh, pre-A, I think, method book for for later beginners. And I was pleasantly surprised to learn that my new adult student took to it immediately. You know, she had some guitar experience and she loved that every single page featured a diagram of the keyboard at the top before we had to delve into the actual piece. Plus the majority of the uh, pieces, which by the way, basically throw you right into staff reading from the get-go, um, are, are somewhat centered around middle C and, and pretty focused on stepping before they get to things like intervals like fifths and leaping and this is in contrast to the Faber method which I feel throws you right into fifths from the second staff piece uh offered <laughs> yeah that's right um the very early on they, they 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 don't name it as a concept but they do have you using multiple uh you know those those, uh, those large fifth intervals, which can certainly be um, a a struggle for for some students. Absolutely. Um, so I remember we had a conversation um, a few weeks ago about the idea of just throwing out method books almost entirely, right? And and going um, your own way. So would you say that's something that most teachers should, should be, you know, should be doing? They should, they should uh, move away from the method books, or do you think that there's a place for the method book? Oh, good question. Well, um, I've spoken to some advanced teachers. When I say advanced, that doesn't necessarily mean all their students are advanced. A lot of them are teaching complete beginners, but, um, they're, they're veteran teachers who have become disillusioned with the method book as a concept. Uh, and I think it's, you know, if, if not something that teachers should do per se, maybe it's something that teachers should at least consider that, hey, it is possible to achieve success as a piano teacher um, and, and for a student by just going with hand-picked repertoire selections, etudes, exercises, scales, chords, and the like. We, we don't necessarily need a book that someone else has published full of pieces that someone else has chosen, um, excuse me, and exercises that someone else has chosen uh, to find that, that sort of uh, musical clarity that we so badly want our students to achieve. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think it should be said, though, that um, if a teacher does decide to kind of forego the method book or, or go off book, as, as it were, that they should strongly uh, consider what it is, you know, why they are choosing a particular piece, right? Um, and, and that ordering of technique and, and reading is so important as well even if you're going off of that you still need to, to consider that for sure um mm -hmm. and if you are are going to go away from those method books you should be able to explain to yourself you know i'm choosing this piece because this or and then the next piece after that is going to be this one because 
you know, if you're if you're gonna go off that script, you want to make sure you don't get kind of lost. And then, you know, a year later, you realize that there are these glaring holes in in your students in your students' knowledge, right? Oh yeah, and I think the one of the most important things to consider when you go off book and you decide to teach a student uh, just repertoire, exercises, etudes, scales, chords, your way, uh, is, is that you'll need a solid lesson plan specifically focused on technique for any given piece of repertoire that you choose. So let's say you want to teach a student, um, I don't know, Bergmuller's Our Best, that's a popular uh, elementary, very early intermediate piece. The student should be able to play triad staccato at that point, have a pretty masterful uh, command of dynamics, and be comfortable rapidly changing hand positions uh, in both hands. And for that, you may need to set aside some time to learn other repertoire pieces to, to guide them up to that level of proficiency before diving into a teaching piece like that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, that's a really interesting um, conversation about about method books. What do you think the main takeaways for our listeners are about method books? I would say, you know, if you're a, if you're a fledgling music teacher who's just coming out the gate, definitely lean on method, method books, especially popular ones like Faber, um, Alfred's books, John Thompson, Bastion, Music Tree, all of these gems. Uh, and if you have a little bit more experience, maybe it's time to seriously consider going off method book and, and just taking each individual student's needs and talents and weak points into account and crafting. And this is going to take a lot of extra time on your part, a lesson plan that will work for them and allow them to thrive. Cool. So inexperienced teachers absolutely want to use a method book um, because they just they just help us out so much. But for us more experienced teachers might be time to start thinking about what you can do, um, even just as a supplement to an existing method book. For myself, I, I lean heavily on the Piano Adventures uh, by Faber, and um, I am a... Um, pretty ardent devotee of of the piano adventures uh, i use i've used all four of their series the the uh standard one um for students like six to eleven the accelerated level uh set for twelve to uh seventeen the adult series uh for eighteen and up as well as the my first piano adventures mm -hmm. for those five year olds which is just has so much singing and and games and I just think you know if I tried to do all of this on my own there's no way that I'd be able to create these these you know music tracks and and these um, these pictures and 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 all of this uh, all of this stuff but I've noticed that um, you know over the last year or so um, I've um, gotten 
away from from how the books introduce certain concepts, how the books introduce certain concepts. Um, and part of that is related to um, what's called preparation stage learning, preparation stage learning. Um, so preparation stage learning is um, a process in which you kind of prime the student to, to receive a new concept. So um, this, this process starts weeks before the actual concept is formally introduced. And we can use uh, we can use staff reading as an example because we were already talking a lot about staff reading as an example. So preparation stage learning happens in short snippets weeks before the concept is formally introduced. Um, and the advantage is that by the time the concept is formally introduced, the student already essentially understands it without realizing that they've already been taught that concept. So they can go home after that lesson that day, basically already understanding it completely instead of just be seeing it for the first time, right? So using Piano Adventures as an example, um, after their um, off staff reading on just the black keys, it switches over to the white keys. We're still off the staff at this point. The names of the keys are inside the notes. After that, we do move over to the staff. And there's a big full page spread with an explanation on the grand staff and all of the notes on it. After that page, we just um, start using the guide notes. We start using middle C, treble G, base F, and we keep going from there. So if we think about what that concept is, right, all of a sudden the names of the notes are not there anymore. Right? The names of the notes are not there anymore. That's a really big concept. Right, That is a complete switch from what they've been doing for the last month or, or two months at that point. And it can be quite a shock. Have you noticed that some students have difficulty um, you know, adjusting when that switch is made? Oh, yeah. When you go from uh, playing something that you know the students are relying heavily on either numbers or letters to figure out what to do and they have a basic understanding of what the keys of the keyboard look like and what each key is named uh, based on looking at the context of the black keys and all um students can really struggle to read more than a couple of notes from the staff that maybe they've just memorized by looking at the staff say middle c and treble g um, in the favorite primer level. When it gets to D, E, and F, that's when I find that um, students start to, their, their velocity starts to maybe slow a little bit in learning. They're taking in more things. The sponge <laughs> of the brain is, is starting to absorb at a slightly lesser pace, though still absorbed. And at that point, if we haven't done some preparation stage learning, it can be pretty challenging. And then by the time you get to the, the notes of the bass clef, it can get especially challenging because it's it's the same appearance, you know, five lines, four spaces, but each line note and space note is gonna mean something different depending what clef you're in. Transferring that to the keyboard 
is is a whole feat of preparation in itself, I think. Absolutely. So if we were to break down the grand staff into its elements, we would say that there's um, three main components to that, right? We have the treble clef, we have the bass clef, and then we have the staff itself. So um, if you don't do any preparation stage learning and you turn from one page to the next and you introduce it all at the same lesson, this is the treble clef, this is the bass clef, staff, we have five lines, uh, for spaces in between, we stick two staff together to make the grand staff. Here we go. We're now using a piece with middle C. Middle C is not even on the staff. What's all that about, right? So there's a lot right. going on all at once. It can be quite overwhelming. So um, we, with, with preparation stage, we want to prepare the student for all of those concepts. And the way mm -hmm. that I do this is first um, I introduce the treble clef and the bass clef. I first introduce the treble clef and the bass clef. And when introducing a new... Um, a new concept or symbol um, with preparation stage learning, there is a framework that you can follow. Then that framework is hear, do, and see. Hear, do, and see. So Good old uh, hear, do, and see. Hear, do, and see. Yes, Professor Edwards would be would be proud that we remember this. Um, and uh, so what that means is that you know music is ultimately sound. So before you name something, before you even talk about it with a student, they should have an opportunity to hear that thing in action, right? And for the staff, that's not really a concern because all of the music we've been playing is already uh, what we're going to be hearing from the staff, right? Um, and then after that, you need to give your student the opportunity to do something with the thing. So for um, the treble clef and the bass clef, that might be giving them the opportunity to, to draw it, teaching them how to draw it. And then after they um, have done it, you, you, they see it as well, right? They see it in action. So um, what I do with the treble clef and the bass clef, the bass clef happens over several weeks. The first week that I introduce them, I just tell my student that there are uh, there's musical symbols that I want to show them. And then I draw a treble clef on my whiteboard and I ask them if they've ever seen this symbol before. And some of them have and some of them haven't. Some of them may have seen it just in life. The treble clef is kind of a stand-in just for music, right? So they may have seen that in some place um, or um, they they may not have. And if they if they don't, I will dramatically turn my head to all of the decorations in my studio, which have the treble clef on it. And I'm like, are you yeah. sure you haven't seen it? <laughs> because there's like five or six treble clefs around my studio. And they're like, oh yeah, I have seen it. It's over there. And I'm like, yeah, so what is that symbol about? Well, this is the treble clef. And the treble clef means that we're using high sounds. Treble clef means we're using high sounds. Here's how we draw it. We start with a J, then we do one loop, two loops, and then we curl around. This other symbol you may not have seen before though. And I draw the bass clef for them. And that one's not all over my studio. It's just in one place in that painting back there. So it's pretty hidden. So maybe they have not seen that one before. Yeah. Where in, where in a building is the basement, right? It's low. So that's it. That takes one or two minutes max. And I don't send them home with homework about the treble clef or the bass clef. I don't 
um, expect them to remember that. That's that's stage one here, right? So we've um, we've 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 talked about it. And the week after that, they're gonna do something with it, right? They're gonna do something with it. They've seen it um, and they've heard it. And um, now what they're gonna do is they are going to take a look at their pre-staff music, and we're gonna pick a spot for the treble clef to be drawn, and we're gonna pick a spot for the bass clef to be drawn. So maybe we're on Ode to Joy, or maybe we're on uh, Men from Mars from the Piano Adventures book. Uh, this is how, that's how early this stuff, I introduced this stuff. So I talk oh, about- that's which, a good idea. Yeah, so um, this is something that they will then spend weeks and months doing before the staff is finally introduced. So I asked them which side of the piano is the high side, right side, which side is the low side. So I say, do you remember those symbols from last week? Let's draw them again. And then we talk about how to draw them and we draw them and I said, the treble clef means high sounds, right? Remember that's the one that's all over the place here. And which hand do you usually use to draw, uh, to play high notes? And they'll say the right hand. And then we draw that in next to where it says RH in their method book for that piece. And then we do the same thing with the bass clef. And for the rest of the pre-staff chapter, every time we look at a new piece of music, we will do that same process. We will draw the treble clef and the bass clef. And the wonderful thing about that part of the book is that they, the, the book switches up which hand plays first. Sometimes it has the left hand starting first, sometimes it has the right hand starting first. So we have to critically think about, are we using the low side here or are we using the high side? That element is not new. The treble clef and the bass clef are not new. That is something that they have already seen before. Um, and then the other element of the grand staff is the staff itself. So we do some preparation stuff here. They've already heard it. So for us to be able to write it, we take a look at um, a whiteboard, which has the staff written on it. And I will, instead of drawing a clef, I will draw a note name in the appropriate spot. So if we're in the treble clef staff, we're not, there's no treble clef, but I might draw an F on the lowest space. And then I'll put a quarter note right next to that F and ask them what note they think that is and they'll usually say F. And then we do repeated notes, we go up in steps, we go down in steps, so that we familiarize ourselves with what pre, uh, what, what staff notation looks like. And then eventually we will combine the two concepts. We will have the treble clef and we'll have the bass clef. And that's when we formally introduce it in the book. So they've already learned that over weeks or months before they actually need it. We put the two elements together. And instead of having this be a disorienting experience of everything is changing, it is an aha moment where everything kind of clicks. Those short little activities that we've been doing suddenly make sense. And now they finally, after weeks or months, have something to take home where they need to remember what this stuff means. All of these other times, nothing was taken home. Nothing was expected to be remembered. There was no quizzing done. It was all just short, low impact um, activities that uh, 
eventually culminated in the Grand Staff. And um, uh, I've had great success with, with incorporating preparation stage learning into my teaching. So, Ariane, do you use any preparation stage learning? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to say before I respond to that a little bit uh, more in detail, that what you mentioned a moment ago was pretty powerful, that, that we as teachers have the power to change what could be a disorienting learning experience into an aha moment. And, and, and it kind of all depends on how we prepare the student to receive certain information. So yeah, I would say I, I try to appeal to the visual learners, kinesthetic learners, um, and auditory learners. I'll usually, no matter how old or young the student is, I will ask right off the bat, and I'll keep an eye for clues, eye out for clues too, that maybe the student might not even be uh, conscious of as to what kind of learner they are. So I'll, if they're seven, for instance, I'll say, how, how do you best learn things with your eyes, your ears? You know, do you like to do things with your hands? Yeah. Everybody's different. How do you learn information the best? And usually everybody has an answer, no matter how old they are, unless they're like three or four or something like that, <laughs> then they might just stare. Uh, but this allows me to use concepts like to build on concepts that students are already familiar with, such as color, temperature, uh, and, and just quickly form some kind of uh, association with what they already know, like colors and temperatures, uh, to what they're learning about, such as things like pitch. What I like to do is... Um, form little games and activities like like give the student red tokens that they can put on the right half of the piano and blue tokens that they can put on the left half of the piano because red is more associated with higher temperatures and warmer colors just like the higher pitches of the piano are blue is more associated with the cool stuff and, and maybe darker stuff more associated with the bass clef and then when it comes to middle c you know just at the beginning stage i like to put have the student put two tokens on both. Um, this is something that's more age dependent too. So for the younger kids, they, they like to do that. It's a kinesthetic exercise. It's also a very visual, uh, visually appearing, appealing exercise with color. Um, and we can, it opens up the discussion to what the treble clef and the bass clef really are. Um, of course, they've heard the different tones. They, they've associated it with different animal sounds, high-pitched bird noises, low-pitched tiger noises, whatever, things like that. Um, but I, what I like to do the best just in a pinch when it comes to preparation stage learning is flashcards. Uh, so, you know, on the topic of treble and bass clef, I'll show them a picture of the treble clef on a flashcard, raise my, you know, left hand if I'm facing them and, and say, treble clef, right hand high pitches, bass clef, left hand, low pitches, um, and just have them repeat it after me in the preparation stage before we even get to staff learning. Um, other things include drawing. I'm, I'm huge into just having the student draw the symbol. That way they can take all the time they need 
to understand what something looks like and then familiarize themselves with it. Plus, yeah, I think decoration helps a lot. I have seen um, teaching videos by Marvin Blickenstaff, who I really look up to as, as one of the coolest piano teachers um, in the country, really. And he, just as you do, I don't know if the listeners can see, <laughs> maybe if, if, if they're watching the video, they could see, but Jacqueline's um, decorations, as, as, as you were saying, you know, you have the treble clef and the staff and the bass clef in the background in some of your decorations. Blickenstaff has a rug, um, a rug on his floor right by where the pianos are in his living room that depict the music staff and the the keys of the piano that are associated with with the different clefs so i think that is a great way for students to be grounded to be able to see a piece of um i don't want to say furniture is rug are rugs furniture <laughs> or some kind of decoration decor decor there you go thank you that that really can drive concepts home and remind someone in a pinch what something is and what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Just having that kind of seep into their their unconscious unconscious mind because they see this thing over and over again as they come to piano lessons and now all of a sudden they know what it's called and people will say like, I mean, wow, that's what's on the rug, right? That's what's down there. That's, that's the treble clef. Right. Mm -hmm. And that gives a little aha moment. Every one of those aha moments is a success because people feel so empowered when they feel like they have put two things together and come up with a third thing. Right. When they're they mm -hmm. like, oh, that's that thing I've seen already. And I know what that means. So I'm able to 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 do this. Right. And uh, it is just such an empowering experience for them. And that's a memorable experience. If you can make that first experience with something new, a memorable experience, then you can, uh, you reduce the chances that they're going to forget that thing. If they discover it themselves, that's a much stronger memory than if we just tell them to do something. Telling, unfortunately, is not the same as teaching something. So uh, it's such a, yeah. so much more powerful when it's self, self-discovery rather than um, teacher-driven discovery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, what do you think are big takeaways from, from, uh, from, sta uh, from preparation stage learning? This is absolutely something that every teacher should be doing. And it is off book. Books don't do this, right? They can't do this because if this happens you know, in the margins of a piano lesson, right? This happens uh, in those moments which the student really won't remember, but when it, once it all comes together, it makes sense, right? So staff reading is absolutely one of those things. If your book does not have a treble clef and a bass clef in the pre-staff reading stages, absolutely teach your students what the treble clef is and what it means, what the bass clef is, what it means and draw that on every single new piece of music or have them do it draw the, have them draw their own um treble clef and bass clef so that by the time they get to it it is not new and disorienting so absolutely yeah. do preparation stage learning it will have a huge impact on your piano lessons and it works with everything it works with 
tricky concepts like rests, right? Uh, it, it works with eighth notes. That's another big stumbling block for students is eighth notes. Um, and uh, these, these tricky concepts can become much easier to digest and you don't have your students feeling lost and confused. Any takeaways did you think I missed? Uh, you know what? I, I was I, I heard something that you said earlier that, that no method book could do this. And I thought, yeah, well, since preparation stage learning has demonstrated itself to be so essential uh, in the piano learning process for, for whatever, no matter what concept the student needs to learn, I thought, hmm, maybe a new method book could be designed <laughs> where that's the goal, you know? So, so let's say that the student understands the staff and now we're launching into things like uh, focusing on dynamics. Well, maybe during a piece that doesn't have any dynamic instruction, I'm not talking Faber because I feel like Faber introduces dynamics first and foremost, but say a method book that does not include dynamics until after you've learned the staff, um, just as a just as a shoddy hypothetical here. Well, maybe <laughs> one of the final, a few of the final pieces that feature repertoire without dynamics can have a little box at the bottom of the page that says, get ready to learn what, you know, piano, forte, mezzo, forte and mezzo piano mean. By the way, this is the definition and you're gonna see it uh, two pages from now. Yeah, you know, um, I remember hearing um, Professor Edwards, um, our teacher from California State uh, Fullerton, I remember her saying once that there comes a point in every teacher's career where she's like, I should design a method book. I, <laughs> I, should, I should write a method book. Um, and I never really, I never really understood what what she meant until a couple of years ago when I'm like, there's just, just there's a better way to to do this, right? There's a better mm -hmm. way to teach this specific thing, and we. Sh uh oh, we froze. Oh my. I'm certainly not going to get myself into designing a method book. You can make adjustments, right? You can make adjustments. You can pull in other resources. You can do um, off-book activities. You can include copies of other resources. So you can customize the experience that your students have with their method book um, by adding on to it or taking away things. Maybe you feel mm -hmm. like some of this stuff is redundant, right? Maybe mm -hmm. you feel like some of it's redundant and you, you know, it, it, it just, just skip it. If you feel like that's something that your student can handle experiment, right? I, I, right. uh, couple, maybe six, eight months ago, I started skipping the, um, early white key pieces because they introduced the white keys, but with my preparation stage learning, by the time they get to the white keys, they already know all the names of the white keys. So we jump straight from black keys to see the CDEFG march because all of that other stuff, I feel like it's redundant now. Would I have felt confident enough six years ago 
seven years ago, eight years ago to, to do that? Probably not, right? I, I held on to those. But as I've been introducing new activities that also teach the same thing, I'm like, this is redundant. I don't I don't need to do this. And I can cut off three or three, three weeks of unnecessary pieces and keep my students moving more quickly, which is always a good thing. Absolutely. If there's redundance, or if, if there's, you know, no method book is infallible. If you think there's something in there that is consistently confusing your students um, because it's being taught at the wrong time or in the wrong uh, context, you can skip it, add it in later, come back to it, whatever you need to do um, to, to tweak it. But there's no way that you can just teach 100% by the book. Um, the way that method books are right now. <laughs> unless you've designed your own change. method book, unless you are the designer of your own method book, then you can probably, you probably believe 100% that everything in there is is exactly where it should be. But if you haven't designed then. your own method book, then you should probably not just use it right off the shelf. And you should probably should not just turn the page and be like, all right, this is a brand new concept. We're going to learn this today and mm -hmm. uh, send your students home with their with their poor little heads absolutely spinning from that new concept. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why I think, you know, the topic that uh, I chose about method books, the topic that you chose, preparation stage learning, they're so, um, so connected. And so I'm, I'm glad that we kicked off the podcast with with these two topics, because there's there's just a lot to dive into. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we will have a um, a summary of the the podcast up on the Defined Music Teacher website, as well as a transcript of our um, of our conversation today. And um, yeah, I think that's all for our first episode. What do you think, Arion? I think it went pretty well, all things considered. You know, there there's so many cool things to think about. It's inspiring to be able to talk to a colleague before going off to my own lesson in an hour to, to teach a group of three uh, siblings slash cousins a few blocks away from me. Um, I, I have some new ideas for what to do with their activities today already. And uh, it, it just keeps things fresh because, you know, it could be kind of isolating being a private piano teacher with, with just yourself as your uh, your own colleague all the time. <laughs> Absolutely, so. it gets it's it's quite an adjustment to go from um, a uh, a pedagogy program where you're surrounded by all of these other teachers and you're surrounded by these intelligent professors that just want to give you their knowledge to all of a sudden just being surrounded by people who um, it's your job to teach them and they don't have the, you know, that they don't contribute this, the same thing back. We all learn something from our students, absolutely, mm -hmm. but they, we, don't, we don't have deep pedagogy discussions with them. And it can be very isolating. So this was awesome. So hey. I think we'll sign off. Yeah, signing off and, and thank you so much. It'll, I'll, I'll probably ask for a copy of the podcast to post on the Whittier Family Music School web page as well here so uh looking forward to that and looking forward to our next episode <laughs>